the intentional life walks alone at some point. Not that they don't have friends, but at some point they remove themselves from the noise of this world and the expectation of society. And, and they sit down with themselves quietly and say, who am I and what do I want to do? Like, who do I want to be? Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better, based on the book of the same name, which is out now everywhere. Each week on the podcast, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their story. Today's guest is Joshua Becker, author, philanthropist, and crucially, minimalist. After a personal epiphany, Becker found that when he began owning less, he had more time. He also had more focus, less stress, less distraction and more freedom because, he says, every added possession increases the worry in our lives. Today he has two million followers online at Becoming Minimalist. He's the author of five best-selling books on minimalism and he's here today to share his insights about how to be sad, well and live with less. So Joshua Becker, welcome to How To Be Sad. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, stop. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. It's lovely to speak to you and you very kindly spoke to me for the book, How To Be Sad. So it's nice to catch up post-lockdown life, see what's been happening. But I know from our previous discussions, you have not always lived a minimalist lifestyle. So I would love to begin by if you could tell us a little about how you got started with this philosophy. Sure. I was mid-30s, living a pretty typical suburban American life, uh, which means the more money you make, the more stuff you buy. A couple of pay increases over the years and a couple moves and bought bigger house and bought more stuff to put inside of it. Uh, When I was 35, uh, my son was five and my daughter was two. And uh, my wife and I woke up to do some pretty typical spring cleaning on a Saturday morning. I went to clean out my garage, hoping that my five-year-old son would enjoy the process and want to help me, but he lasted about 20 seconds. Hours later, I'm working on the same garage. Uh, My son's running up about every 15, 20 minutes to see if I would come play with him. I happened to strike up a conversation with my neighbor uh, who had been doing all of her yard work. I was complaining about my project and she introduced me to the word minimalism. She said, you know, that's why my daughter is a minimalist. She keeps telling me I don't need to own all this stuff. And I remember looking at my driveway, which had this pile of dirty, dusty things that I would pulled out of the garage to clean. And I would have said, like uh, most people would say, that I wasn't looking for happiness in my possessions. I wasn't trying to buy happiness. But as I'm looking at the pile of things out of the corner of my eye, uh, there's my five-year-old son swinging alone on the swing set in the backyard uh, where he'd been all morning long and uh, suddenly had this further realization that not only were my things not bringing me happiness, Uh, They were actually taking me away from the very thing that did bring me happiness. And not just happiness, but meaning and fulfillment and purpose and joy and significance. And so um, that was the start of uh, my journey to own less and how I discovered in that one moment uh, how possessions can actually become a pretty big distraction in our lives. 
And you downsized quite dramatically, didn't you, at that point? Yeah, we uh, took us about nine months. Uh, then three years later, we ended up moving into a into a smaller home. But all told, uh, we got rid of about 60, 70% of our things and uh, haven't missed it a bit. <laughs> I would like to share that I'm speaking to you and you have a very blank canvas of a wall behind you. So it looks fairly minimalist. But it's the time, I think, that it gave you back that I find most compelling. You mentioned how many of us spend more time perhaps picking out the right couch than we do thinking seriously about our future. And you mentioned a statistic that in the UK, I think 75% of parents are too busy to read their children a bedtime story at night. And it just seems crazy. So tell me why it gives us more time when we have less stuff. Yeah, it gives us a lot of things back. I always say it gives us all of our finite resources back, money and time and energy and, and focus. Man, I've been doing this for a lot of t for a long time, and I have come to realize that most people have no idea how much of a burden their possessions have become until they begin to remove them. And when you begin to remove the possessions from your home and life that you don't need, it really is surprising. Um, when you remove the things and when you remove the pursuit of more and more things, uh, how much of your life uh, you get back. I wonder in your work, as you are also a pastor, and in your work with, with a congregation, with the people that you interact with, whether you noticed a change during the pandemic? Because I certainly feel as though a lot more people have got quite heavily involved with Amazon during that time, for example. You know, the the pursuit of a sensation of some kind when we are cut off from the support networks we might normally rely on. Yeah, it was, uh, I remember the conversation I was having with, uh, with a gentleman and it was uh, five or six months into it, um, at least here in the US. And I was talking, he was asking me about, hey, how has the pandemic affected what you do and your readership and your reach and influence? And, and I said, I was a little surprised because when I first heard that people were going to be confined to their homes, I thought, man, this will be a golden age for minimalism. Like people have to face their clutter. There's nothing that they can do except clean out their closet. And I didn't see that big of a movement. Um, I certainly a lot of news reports about Goodwill being overwhelmed afterwards and thrift stores receiving a lot of donations. And so I think there was a lot of that was that was taking place when I was having this conversation with this gentleman and sharing the story. He goes, you know, the one thing I feel like I can control in my life um, is when I'm buying something from Amazon <laughs> that the that the world is out of control, that I can't go to the restaurant that I wanted to go to, I can't go to the movie that I wanted to, I, uh, I can't even spend time with the people that I want to, but I know I can still go to Amazon and buy the one thing that, that I want to buy. And Amazon stock did amazingly well during the pandemic. Yeah, I think you're right. It's that control thing, isn't it? And we've spoken before that you, you are a twin and your sister was born just a year after you guys were yeah. born, is that right? Yeah, wow, and very impressive. Yeah, I remember because because I think we spoke when I had just had my twins. And so I also had, I had sort of had three age three and under and you said, well, that's nothing. <laughs> my mom had <laughs> three babies in 367 days, yeah, I think you yeah. said. But um, I wonder, you've spoken about sometimes that, that competitiveness between siblings 
or when there are lots of children together and everybody just wants to have something, to acquire something that is just your own. And I wonder if that sort of reminded me of the control thing. If if the world seems out of control, then you can have stuff and stuff is solid and you can see it and you can touch it, you can hold on to it. And you see that a lot in kids. They just want things. How do we try to remove that... Um, I guess that false idea of security. Sure. How how do we overcome this? Is I I think a lifelong battle, certainly in a society and culture that tells us to accumulate more and more um, all the time. And those are the messages that we that we constantly hear that our life will be better if if we buy uh, whatever it is that they're selling. What we realize is I do have a little bit of control when I buy this thing, but it is it's a false control and it's it's an easy control if that makes sense like there are other things in my life that I can still control my habits uh, how I interact with people there are harder things uh, that take more effort and energy and aren't as easy as clicking to ship on Amazon uh, but in the long run it's learning to control those things it's taking control over, over our habits uh, and behaviors that uh, I think uh, pay off better in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. And I've read um, I read you writing about TV and not only the advertising that is is making us think that we want something that it's like the old John Berger idea that our happiness is is sold back to us for the price of the product, but it's also that the lifestyles that we're seeing on television are unattainable. So we are lucky enough in the UK, for example, and in Denmark to have ad-free public service broadcasting. And in a way, you know, you get Netflix, there's no adverts necessarily, but you're still seeing a lifestyle that you may not have access to. What What's your sort of relationship with TV? What's your view on television these days? My relationship with television was uh, one of the biggest arguments that I had with my editor when I was writing the book, The More of Less, actually, because I was I was very adamant about including a section on how television compels us to buy things that we don't need. And the editor pushed back and said, yeah, but you see advertisements. There's advertisements everywhere. Why are you going to single out television? And my response was that Number one, I, I learned a little bit from my grandpa. Uh, my grandpa uh, passed away in December. He was 99 and um, wow. seen, seen quite a bit of life. And I, I remember asking him, I said, do you think the world is more consumeristic now than it was when, when you were in your 30s? And he said, absolutely. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, uh, without hesitation, he said, I think television is probably the main culprit. Uh, television really gets to... I think control our thinking and control our our mindset more than more than we think it does. And can we talk about inequality? I feel as though stress and income inequality and even addiction have now been linked now by numerous studies and the idea of comparing our lives with people around us and I read that you said that purposefully owning less begins to take us out of the unwinnable game of comparison. So regardless of our media consumption, you think actually owning less will start to make us feel better and less prone to, I guess, comparison. Yeah, and I see it for two reasons. Uh, Number one, when I began owning less and I started 
experiencing the benefits of it, that that burden removed, the the more money and time and energy and focus. I was a better example for my kids, a better life for the environment, like all these benefits of owning less. I became drawn to the idea of owning less. I, I think we uh, we get it backwards sometimes where we think once I want to own less, then I can start owning less. I found it the other way around that there was a initial desire, but the less I owned, the more I wanted that to be true of my life. As I saw, I was gaining back control and intentionality uh, of the life that I was living. And so when I began wanting less, comparing my possessions to other people became almost non-existent. Like I, I almost feel bad for people who are continually having to go buy something to make their day better or to make their their life more enjoyable or what they think will improve their life. And I've actually found that the best way to overcome comparison, the best way to overcome envy, jealousy, is to just live your most intentional life focused on the things that matter most to you. Because when we're directing our resources and when we're directing our life towards those things that matter most to us, uh, it matters less the notoriety that someone else is getting, the income that someone else has, the size of the house that someone else has, how they're spending their money on certain things. Because I know that I'm doing the best, I know that I'm doing the, the most that I can with my life. The second argument that I had about the book, The More of Less, was uh, not just the, the television part, but they first asked me what I wanted on the cover. It was a book about minimalism, and I said, I know you are going to want to put plastic chairs on a beach to represent minimalism. And I just want you to know that that is the exact opposite of what this book is about. It's not a book about checking. Minimalism isn't about, at least, well, some people probably use minimalism to check out of life, but this book isn't about owning less so that I can live on a beach for the rest of my life. Uh, this is a book about owning fewer possessions so that I can devote more time and energy towards those things that actually do matter, towards those things that do bring fulfillment and meaning and purpose into my life. Okay. Yeah. So I think, yeah, misconceptions around minimalism, people think of it as of either, you know, a type of austerity or like empty white cubes, but that's not what you're saying. And I want to talk about when you got the book deal and you'd sent it to 10 publishers and nine made offers. So you knew you were going to get paid fairly handsomely. Tell me about the dilemma or, or perhaps not a dilemma of, of how to write a book about minimalism, but then work out what to do with the big pay packet about it. Yeah, that was the that was the story. We my my readership grew and, and uh, my passion grew for the blog. And um, after a while, a blog just becomes a little bit of a stream of consciousness. You write about this one week and the next week and something different. And um, so the idea of putting it into a, into a book um, was something that I was drawn to. And so the idea that I was going to get paid a lot of money uh, to write a book about how buying things won't make you happy uh, was, a, was a very interesting 
contrast and uh, and spot to be in. And it's one thing to commit to not buying things. It's one thing to pursue a minimalist life when you're lower middle class and you don't have a lot of financial resources to be buying whatever it is that you want. Uh, and it's something completely different to have a, uh, a sudden large paycheck and uh, be in a very different financial position than you were than you were the, the day before. So yeah, my wife and I sat down uh, on the couch. I remember it pretty well and um, just said, what are we like, what are we going to do? Uh, you want to buy a bigger screen television? You want to buy a bigger house? You want to get like we could buy those things if we wanted to. But we knew that that's not what we what we want to do. So we um, started a nonprofit organization uh, called The Hope Effect. Uh, where we uh, we work to change the way the world cares for orphans uh, by getting orphan children out of institutional orphanages, which have um, pretty negative long-term effects, uh, and to get them into families uh, where they can grow up and see what a family looks like and, and how it functions and just have a, that attention and affection that, that every child um, deserves and, uh, and should have. So that's what we that's what we did with the with the money from the from the books. That's amazing. And and for you and your family and for your wife especially, the hope effect and and the idea of making sure that babies get a good home and a good upbringing is incredibly important, isn't it? Can you tell us about your wife's story? Uh, my wife was uh, yeah, my wife was adopted as a as a baby out of the out of the hospital. So we knew like. We're going to start a nonprofit organization. Okay, well, there's a lot of problems in the world that that need to be solved. We knew that it was going to be something around orphan care um, because that was always something important to us and my wife's story. And uh, my best friend, um, his name is uh, Joe Darigo. He has adopted two children from overseas, a baby from South Korea, and then a 12-year-old from Thailand. It was when I went to coffee with him and I just started sharing about what we wanted to do. And he said, let me tell you what, what I've been learning and just what the statistics say. Like decades old research um, we've had about how orphanages are detrimental long-term. They're better than the streets. I mean, they're, they're better than nothing, but they're not as helpful for children as, as growing up in a family. And so that was the, that was the conversation that really um, we decided that's what we were gonna try to do in the world. I was really struck when we spoke for my book, How to Be Sad, about how you are effectively giving giving roles or for the children to to help them feel useful. Can you explain a little more about you doing this and, and how this works, this, you know, overcoming learned helplessness? We visited uh, several different orphanages and several different organizations around the world while we were trying to tailor our approach and the solution that we were going to try to offer. And we visited this uh, orphanage that was doing amazing work um, and had a lot of a lot of success with the, the children that, that went through their program there. And we we're touring the facilities and uh, there was this campground up on the hillside. And I asked the director, what's the what's the campground for? And he said, oh, we have a lot of different church groups or school groups or volunteer groups and they'll come down to serve and they'll stay on the campground. And I asked, oh, and then they like help you what paint buildings and play with the kids and raise the kids. And he's like, no, no, none of them, none of them serve here. 
They just stay here. We send them into the city. They build homes. They paint schools. They work with churches and community groups. And then he said, as a matter of fact, uh, not only do they not come here to serve us, but we send our children, our orphan children, with them into the city to build houses and paint schools and, and do all the work. I'm like, really? Like, what a unique... I, I never would have dreamt that, that that's how that served. And uh, he just made this statement that I, I believe to be true. Uh, and he said, the, the only way to overcome a victim mindset is to begin serving other people. Doesn't mean that they didn't go through horrible things. I mean, just the the focus of your book is so brilliant. Like it, it doesn't mean that the negative circumstances didn't happen and doesn't mean that there isn't grieving that needs to go there through there and a process that needs to be worked through. Um, but it means that that you don't have to stay stuck there. Uh, you don't you don't have to live forever in that in that mindset. Um, and the, once we begin to see the good that we can bring into the world, uh, we begin to see how much value our, our life uh, still has. I think there's definitely something about the, to, to simplify it horribly, but if you're sad and you just do you, it's not going to be as helpful. It's it's doing these acts of service and doing other things. And you know, as you are doing, you're trying to reach out and make a difference. You acknowledge that the act of owning less can be quite scary and that all change is difficult and it can feel uncomfortable and people are not sure about it. And what do you sort of say to people who, who are perhaps resistant or perhaps it is a comfort blanket having your stuff around you? How do you even begin to make a big change in your life? By, uh, by making a small change. There are certainly some people who hear about minimalism and they're in and I know some people who got rid of everything over a weekend, but that's a pretty small personality type. <laughs> I always encourage people that you don't have to start owning less by getting rid of the most difficult thing in your life to get rid of because our minds tend to race towards that direction. Yeah, but I love my books. I love my, I'm a very sentimental person. Um, I love my arts and crafts. I love my hobbies. I love this or that. We tend to think of the hardest thing that we would ever have to get rid of. And uh, I always encourage people to, to just begin by getting rid of some of the easiest things that you can get rid of. There's a, a way that we can get started and we can start freeing up some, some space in our home and, and start seeing how this is improving our lives. And then we, we build up this muscle a little bit. I think it compels us forward. We start seeing uh, how owning less is benefiting us. So my philosophy is to, to, to start in, in one space, uh, to clear a lived in space, uh, clear a living room, clear your car, uh, a bedroom, the easiest, most lived in space where you can remove the, the clutter, remove the things you don't need, um, and then experience those benefits right away and kind of work your way to some of those harder spaces. And you also talk about decluttering your habits. Can you explain a bit more what you mean by that? Minimalism is about intentionality. 
I define minimalism as the intentional promotion of the things we most value by removing anything that distracts us from it. And so for a lot of people, possessions are a distraction. Like there's just too many of them in our homes and our desire to have more. But the principles apply elsewhere. Like it applies to the commitments that we have in our lives. It uh, applies to the relationships. It It applies to habits. It applies to how we use social media. It applies to even the work that we do. Like there are a lot of things that we do that aren't moving us towards however we've defined our our purpose in life and the the life that we that we want to end up living and so it's really about taking back intentionality i have found that habits become a part of this my story is we start in may my birthday's in december and my wife said well what do you want for your birthday And I said, I have no idea. Like, I don't want a tie. I just got rid of 10. I don't want a belt. I just got rid of four. Like, what do I want for my birthday if it's not going to be a a physical thing wrapped in a a bow? And a a gym had just opened up, a, a fitness center had just opened up down the street. And I said, how about a membership to the gym? I have more free time now. I'm not spending my Saturdays cleaning the garage. And I started going to the gym and after about a month of going to the gym, you really start looking at your diet and and how you care for the the food that's coming in. And so one habit just led to another. Uh, I started writing and so I stopped watching television so I could spend more time writing. It's just like one habit leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. I I usually tell people if if you want to change your life, Uh, just change one habit. Like some people like the trajectory of their lives and that's fine. But if you don't like the trajectory of your life, just change one habit, change the way you eat or, or add exercise or wake up earlier, start journaling, um, watch less television, like just change one thing and, and one positive change tends to, um, tends to lead to others. And decluttering goals you've also mentioned before and, is that does that sort of dovetail with the habits if you're if you're deciding well actually I re- reassessing what it is that's important to you you know the person who tries to chase two rabbits uh, doesn't catch any I don't know if you should say that or or someone you know like <laughs> if I if I'm trying to do too many different things then I'm I'm not successful in any of them and so sitting down and and spending some time alone with yourself the the intentional life walks alone at some point not that they don't have friends but at some point they remove themselves from the noise of this world and the expectation of society and and they sit down with themselves quietly and say who am i and what do i want to do like who do i want to be and uh, what do I want to accomplish? What are the big things that I want my life to be about? And when we do that, then we can start to look at, so what are the things that I'm doing that don't serve those purposes? And I, people come up with different things. I, I think most people come up with, we think about family and relationships and a lot of people think of faith and we think of making a difference in the world or best being the best version of our of ourselves or whatever it might be, but the more clear we can be on 
what we want our life to look like, um, the easier it is, I think, to begin uh, aligning our, our resources around some of those pursuits. That's wise advice. And tell me about restoring sanity to gift giving. I mean, gym membership, that's a great gift because it's not a physical thing. Other than gym memberships, what else could we do to make things less crazy here? Let me ask you a cultural question. I have found I get asked a lot, hey, how do I stop people from giving me gifts? And I always tell them, tell me if this is true uh, across the world. You are not going to find much luck in telling someone to give you no gifts. Like most people aren't going to respect that and they're still going to give you something. So because they want to show their love, they want to show their respect. I don't think gift giving is this new phenomenon in a consumeristic culture. I don't think it's a a U.S. centric thing. I, I think all through the ages we have been showing love and respect by giving gifts to other people. And so I say, rather than telling someone not to give you a gift, just redirect their gift giving towards something that you do want. So we all have needs, like to live is to consume. So so what are some needs that you have? What are some experiences that you want? Uh, what are some consumables that you can that you would appreciate receiving and provide this gift list for for these types of gifts that you would like, as opposed to just saying, don't give me anything. Am I true? Am I true across the world or am not? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Although it is, I would say, I think American and Japanese friends and colleagues who are the most possibly prolific gift givers. And finally, I like to end by asking all of my guests with all that you know now and with the sort of sitting with the silence and the feelings and thinking about what is truly important to you, which is something I think a lot of us are still quite resistant to. I think even with the pandemic, even with the world shutting down and things becoming quiet and far less busy for many, there's still that real reluctance to to sit with any sort of sadness. But knowing all you know, what advice would you give to, say, your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? If I were to, uh, if I were to do it Personally, uh, we did not grow up financially wealthy, although pretty squarely middle class. I didn't miss meals, but we weren't eating at fancy restaurants either. My life was pretty stable. Uh, I didn't have to go through a lot of turmoil, and I'm so thankful for the way my parents provided that stability. But not not everyone had uh, lived that type of life their first 21 years and no one goes through life uh, with that being the the default position uh, your entire life and so i I think to my 21 year old self i would um, have tried to stress empathy Uh, i would have tried to stress that uh, there's hardship in the world uh, that uh, life is never a hundred percent positive for anybody and that that I would know to expect it to be coming and that I would probably be a little bit more empathetic towards people in general is what I would have wanted to communicate to my 21-year-old self. And may I ask what came? What came was I started to recognize how there were so many 
unhealthy motivations in my life. So I have a twin brother. I'm barely six foot. Uh, I played tennis and he was six, four, six, five. And he started on the football team and started on the basketball team. And like he was, he was always more well known uh, than I was uh, in the community. And he became successful in his career much quicker than I did, at least in terms of worldly finances. And, uh, and I, I discovered probably around my mid thirties, uh, how much of my competitiveness, how much my desire to uh, achieve was probably rooted in trying to measure up to the life that he was, that he was living. And so when I think about what came, I mean, what came was the realization of how many unhealthy motivations were were in my life um, and how how negative that was uh, affecting me. And so um, like that was probably one of the 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 hardest things to realize about about my life, you know, less than, you know, people passing away and and those types of circumstances. but that's probably the the roughest thing to to go through. And so, I don't know. I suppose at 21, I don't know if I could have explained that to my 21 year old, 21 year old self, but um, certainly that was going to show up down the down the road. What else? What other ther- what other therapy should we do here? Well, no, I just think it's interesting. I think that's it's not unusual. I think, and especially with a twin sibling bond. I mean, that's and especially of the same sex as well. I think the the comparison is a is a constant one. To to give 21 year old self. You, you some slack, I think, <laughs> to be gentle to 21-year-olds, you. But thank you for sharing. I think I think that's what's been really helpful about the whole of this project and the whole of, you know, learning more about the work you do and the hope effect. And, and just really, I think the more that we are able to share and be honest about our stories and how we get there, and if we all get to the right place in the end, then that's, that's all good. And I think it will help other listeners. So thank you very much for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.